millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, Gary. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. What are we doing today? Well, we've got a special episode. Uh, We're going to look at the first day of the Somme. 1st of July, 1916. Not going to be a lot of humour in this one, uh, but what, what, what we're going to try and do is look at the day through almost telling the story of the day through the voices of the men. So it's not one part of the line it's, or, or, the, or, or the, 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 why things happen. It's just going to be a, a collage of experiences to try and build up a picture of what it was like, which is not nice for most people, as you know. Uh, so that's what we're going to uh, try and do. And we're going to start by looking almost uh, the day before uh, to, to, to see how people's mood, what, what they... Well, they're all young, aren't they? They're all young and... Uh... You use a phrase, Pete, which I think is very apt. You've said that the perils of tomorrow could be buried beneath the confidence of youth. I think that your use of the word buried is a little unfortunate. I'm sure I would never have said buried. In well, view I'd of, never say buried. In, <laughs> in view of what happened to the poor sods uh, who ended up beneath the sods. There's too many puns going on here. But... Um, in a sense, that is what being young is all about. You, you know, you have, you, you have a, you've got very little experience. You don't know what's happening, and and all the sex. And well, I don't know whether obviously, the, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I suppose I can't really remember to be honest. Well, not can I, to be honest? <laughs> We're both happily married men, um, so sex is behind us. <laughs> As are our wives. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Hello, Polly. Right, uh, so I'm going to introduce, so uh, we'll get the humour, well, well, sorry, what passes to us as humour, I realised that uh, you lot ate it. But we're going to start with having a look at uh, a couple of the lads about what they felt before it. And I'm going to be Lieutenant William Collier, who's second role Dublin Fusiliers. And he says, the shadow of impending disaster certainly did not rest upon us during the last days of the preparation. We sat in our company billet and laughed and talked and smoked and sang and drank and retold evil stories, won money at bridge and lost it again at poker, and otherwise conducted ourselves after the usual and well-established custom of high-spirited subalterns. You used to love subalterns, well, didn't you? especially the high-spirited ones. <laughs> yeah, there's now, nothing like a high-spirited subaltern. Now, the mood of the men's not bad on the whole, 
And uh, even the most banal of lyrics were given significance when sung by a company of men marching along in unison to an unknown fate. And I'm going to read a quote, and you're going to join me at a I'm going to join you in singing it. I hope you'll take We're going to try and sing it as properly as we can, but, but it, I, I hope you might even get a touch of what it means. Now, this is Private Albert Atkins of the 1st 7th Middlesex Regiment. They were all lustily singing a sentimental song of the period, which was not only pathetic, but as it transpired, was also prophetic. It went thus. Break the news to mother. Tell there is no other. Tell her not to wait for me. For I'm not coming home. In the case of most of them, how true that turned out to be. Now, despite the confidence, there's also fear, isn't there? Um, they always say you're, you're an island. You you can be surrounded by people, but you've got to be alone with your thoughts. And uh, I suppose everybody, they, they were all, to some extent, frightened, weren't they? Um but uh, what's the one thing about young men about to go into battle? What's the one thing that you... That, well, that... It's, it's taboo to admit it openly to each other. Each one had their own method to try and keep fear at bay. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible... It's, I've always found that in some ways the night before the Somme is, is almost as bad as the, the, the Somme. Uh, the other side of the barbed wire, uh, th- there's thousands upon thousands of young Germans uh, and they've, they've been going through hell, physical, mental hell, uh, and they, they, they don't really know when the blow's going to fall. They can work it out roughly. And, um, and the, 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 it's, it's surely a common humanity binds us all. And you're going to be Private Eversman of 143 Regiment. It's still going on. 96 hours of it now. What will be the upshot? Heaven knows. It's night. Thou fearsome night, what will thou bring us, asks every man. Shall I live till morning? Haven't we had enough of this frightful horror? Five days and five nights, now this hell concert has lasted. Hell indeed seems to be let loose. One's head is a madman's. The tongue sticks to the roof of the mouth. Five days and five nights, a long time to us, an eternity. Almost nothing to eat and nothing to drink. No sleep, always being wakened again. All contact with the outer world cut off. No sign of life from home, nor can we send any news to our loved ones. What anxiety they must feel about us. How long is this going to last? Still, there is no use thinking about it. If I may not see my loved ones again, I greet them with a last farewell. That's quite sad, isn't it? Uh, and what he's talking about there, it's, of course, the barrage. I should have made that slightly more clear. It's been going on for a week, more than a week, and thousands upon thousands of young men... Uh, well, at this point, Pete, it's been going on for five days and five nights. Yeah. So thousands upon thousands of young men spend their last few hours wrapped by a mingled combination of both hope and fear. Yeah. They're daring to hope that they might survive, yet they're facing up to, to the duties of sacrifice and the horrors that lay before them. Ah oh dear, dawn breaks early that 1st of July. Um, it's a short night, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I was thinking about that because we, we, when it, we're recording this in June, but it, it, it's pretty short nights now, but uh, it's not long before the sun rises, is it? And um, uh, what they, it's funny, one thing I, we want to make clear, don't we? Because people often think it's like third eeps. 
It's not. It's it's recognisable countryside, isn't it? It's it's a bit devastated near the trenches. But it. What, what do you what, what, you know? What do you think? It. Well, it's, it's obviously no longer pristine, is it? They're clearly scarred as it was by the white lines of the trenches. That's a chalk, isn't it? Absolutely. And in places, it's been well worked over and battered by the artillery. But nevertheless, it's still replete with many many grassy fields and there were woods overgrown in the absence of uh, siding hands of farmers. Oh. Ow. Now, the morning's perfect. It's got clear skies. And uh, the more religious might have pondered the truly, uh, that truly only the work of man and Pete was vile. Now, you'll notice I got in to say that, Pete. And that's because uh, it wasn't only the work of man and Pete was vile in the notes, was it? No, it was man and Gary. <laughs> I was meaning to do that bit, but I lost concentration at the vital moment, didn't I? Only the work of man and Pete was vile. Right. Now, the British wire was taken down during the night. Uh, ladders. Why do they have ladders? Well, to be able to, get to climb out quickly. Uh, the, the trenches are quite deep. And uh, they also have bridges that are constructed by the Royal Engineers that are fitted in positions to allow troops coming forward to get over the front line trenches. That's to support troops. And yeah, as they're moving forward, waves. they've got to get over. Um, what would each man be carrying then? Um, well, I've got a quote for this. Uh, this is Private Albert Andrews of the 19th Manchester Regiment. And this is what Albert says. I will tell you here what I carried. Oh, all right, Albert, no need to be so... Uh, so oh, all right. Rifle and bayonet with a pair of wire cutters attached, a shovel fastened on my back, a pack containing two days' rations, oil sheet, cardigan, jacket and mess tin, haversack containing one day's iron rations and two mills bombs, 150 rounds of ammunition, two extra bandoliers containing 60 rounds each, one over each shoulder and a bag of 10 bombs. Interesting. What of those, people always say, why were they carrying 60 to 80 pounds on their back? Um, Essential would, equipment. What would you leave behind of that lot? Um, let's have a look. Well, I'd leave the rations behind, then I'd starve, wouldn't I, Pete? Yeah, or maybe I'd leave the Mills bombs behind. Mm. But then I'd come across the trenches and I wouldn't be able to bomb them out of the trenches. It's essential. You're going to take your rifle? Uh, no, because I'll nip back and get that after. Or, or, or why, why would you pack, why do you need a shovel and the others will be carrying picks? It's a choice, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the additional ammunition, 150 rounds of ammunition, that's not going to last that long. Yeah, a bag of 10 bombs. Yeah. Well, uh, so, final bombardment. When does that let rip? It lets rip at uh, 06.30 and uh, almost every gun in the sector drenched the German trenches with uh, bursting shells. And you're going to be someone you've been before. I think you were him at Epes, uh, Brigadier General Hubert Rees. And he's, by this time, uh, he's not a captain or a major anymore. He's he's a brigadier and he's commanding 94th Brigade. Ten minutes before zero, our guns opened an intense fire. I stood on top to watch. It was magnificent. The trenches in front of Sierra changed shape and dissolved minute by minute under the terrific hail of steel. Watching, I began to believe in the possibility of a great success. Now, there's a problem about this bombardment. Uh, it's big. It's good in places. Uh, perhaps it's not as, it, not as good as it ought to have been. But there's another problem. Uh, they haven't suppressed the German artillery. There hasn't been enough counter-battery fire. They haven't silenced the German batteries. So what happens when the final bombardment starts? Well, they now know that the attack's coming and every German battery blazes out in defiance. It's, it's clearly obvious at this stage that they've not been silenced or even reduced to a relative um, quiescence. Ooh. That's a word in the notes, Pete. I would have said something else. Silence. 
Yeah. Now, the British gunners had failed, frankly, to carry out one of their most important tasks. Not really their fault as individuals. It's, it's, it's the allotment of roles. It's the understanding of the nature of the battle, isn't it? It's, it's just not right. It's, it, it, and later on, counter-battery fire becomes the key. Now, the, there's also something else happening. What else, what else is happening? Well, huge mines go up uh, in various places along the front. You can still see some of them. And you're going to be a Private Harry Baumber of the 10th Lincolnshire Regiment. The mine went up and the trenches simply rocked like a boat. We seemed to be very close to it and looked in awe as great pieces of earth as big as coal wagons were blasted skywards to hurtle and roll and then start to scream back all around us. A great geyser of mud, chalk and flame had risen and subsided before our gaze and man had created it. I vividly recall as the barrage lifted temporarily and there was just the slightest pause in this torment Several skylarks were singing. Incredible. That is pretty pretty amazing. Now, we're going to go back to Private Albert Andrews. Now, we've talked before about the everyman nature of the countdown. Uh, the most brilliant one, of course, 4th of June, Joe Murray at in Gallipoli. But the, it's, it's, a, it's, it's just a countdown, countdown to everything. And I'm going to be Private Albert Andrews again, 19th Manchester Regiment. He says, the orders came down, half an hour to, to go quarter of an hour to go, 10 minutes to go, three minutes to go. I lit a cigarette and up the ladder I went, wow. Uh, and a lot of the time, the, the colonels are watching. Is that because the colonels are cowards? No. It's not their job. That's not their job. And I'm going to be Colonel Ambrose Ricardo, the ninth Royal Inner Skilling Fusiliers. He says, I stood on the parapet between the two centre exits to wish them luck. They got through without delay. No fuss, no shouting, no running, everything solid and thorough. Just like the men themselves. Here and there a boy would wave his hand to me as I shouted a good luck to them through my megaphone. And all had a cheery face. Most were carrying loads. Fancy advancing against heavy fire with a big roll of barbed wire on your shoulder. Wow. You're getting a picture of it. And here's another one. And this one's a very well-known individual. He's a... He's Barking mad, to be honest. Um, Lieutenant, he's well known. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Cozier of the 9th Royal Irish Rifles. What have you got to say for yourself? George Gafkin comes next waving an orange handkerchief. Goodbye, sir. Good luck, he shouted to me en passant. Tell them I died a teetotaler. Put it on the stone if you find me. <laughs> oh, that's... That's cracking. Uh, it's deathbed humour. We <laughs> should have put that in the book, Gary. Maybe we should. Now, officers had last-minute thoughts. You know, are the men going to follow them? And you're oh. going to be Lieutenant William Collier of the 2nd Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Just imagine the thoughts going through his mind. Well, here, I'm going to tell you what he said. I clamber out of the front of the deep trench by the scaling ladder. I am smoking a cigarette and superficially am serene and cheerful. At least, I hope I appear so. As I give the order to advance, a sudden thought occurs to me. Will they all obey? This is instantly answered in the affirmative, for they all climb out of the trench. And I don't think I'll ever forget, and you've heard me talk about it before, George Ashurst, you've heard his voice, you've heard him saying this, uh, an interview, and he was on the Corporal George Ashurst, first Lancashire Fusiliers, how he went over the top on the 1st of July, and he says this, 
It's, ta- it's time to go over the top. It was partly blown down, and I'm just stepping on top. There's a corporal lying there, gone, all blown away. I think he'd been hit by a whiz-bang. He looks up at me as I pass him, and he says, Go on, corporal, get the bastards! There were bullets everywhere. Run! That was the only thing in my mind. Run and dodge, expecting at any second to get hit, to feel a bullet hit me. I was zigzagging, holding my head down so a bullet would hit my tin hat. I seemed to be dodging in between them. I must have been to get there. There was gun smoke. You could hear when a bullet hit someone. You could hear it hit him, hear him groan and go down. It was mainly machine guns that cut us up. I was thinking, I've got to get forward. That's all. I dove into the sunken road, and that sunken road, uh, we've all seen the photographs, and he was there in that famous photograph with Colonel Maniac there. Every man alone in a crowd, Gary, uh, and you're going to be Captain Rex G of the 15th Durham Light Infantry. Left trench, 7.30am. Couldn't have faced it unless afraid of funking before the men. Scrambled from shell hole to shell hole, through the wire and craters and awful havoc, terrible sights. Terrible slaughter by the Hun artillery and machine guns. The latter, with snipers, hurling bullets from every direction. Even behind us, men were mown down right and left. It's a storm of bullets come, and this is uh, Lieutenant William Collier, uh, Second Royal Dublin Fusiliers again. He's a, he's a sensitive young officer in some ways, and this is a great quote, I think. Ah! <laughs> ah! <laughs> then the Bosch haven't all run away yet. Bullets are flying about and things aren't so comfortable. A communication trench which we have to cross affords us temporary relief from the ordeal. We can see over the ridge now. There are the skeleton trees of Bowman Hamel. Between is a waste of trench land which is being torn up by shell fire. We're going to have trouble, I can see. We're on top of the ridge and under direct fire. I'm trying not to mind it, but it's impossible. I'm wondering unpleasantly whether I shall be killed outright or whether I shall be wounded. And if the latter, which part of me will be hit? The anticipation of being hit has become so agonising that I can scarcely bear it. I almost wish to God I could be hit and have done with it. I've lost some of my men. I feel an overwhelming desire to swear, to blaspheme, to shout out the wickedest oaths I can think of. But I'm much too inarticulate to do anything of the kind. A shell bursts near and I feel the hot blast. It seems to me that this is a ghastly failure already. A trench runs diagonally across our path. Half of my remaining men are already in it. My whole being cries out in protest against this ordeal. I'm, I'm streaming with perspiration. I think I should go mad. I'm in the trench uh, trying to collect the rest of the men together. Where the devil have they all got to? That is... Just stream of con. I know he's written it later on, but you can feel him live, reliving it. The stream of consciousness, the thoughts passing through his mind. I think it's amazing. Now, officers are a natural target, aren't they? Uh, why do the people kill? <laughs> there is an argument that they should kill the NCOs first, <laughs> and a lot, a lot of NCOs must have wished they'd kill a second lieutenant. But you're going to be uh, Private Arthur Schumann of the First Fifth London Rifle Brigade. Officers led the way, most of whom dropped immediately. Machine guns seemed to crackle from every direction. I kept my head down as low as possible, helmet tilted to protect my eyes, but I could still see men dropping all around me. 
One on my left clutched his stomach and just collapsed. Another, a yard to my right, slumped onto his knees. The din was terrific, stifling any screams. Entangled wire had to be negotiated. Just one opening, on which the German fire was rapid and most accurate. Not many of us got through. And this idea of the just a short, the, the, the not, the, the, where there's just a small gap, a few feet, and they've got a machine gun trained on it. And you've heard a machine gun fire. You've been with Chris Carling to the demonstrations. And can you imagine doing running into a, a what, three, four, five yard gap? No, ah. not at all. Now, Brigadier General Hubert Reese of the Headquarters 95th Brigade 31st Division says, "Well, he's going to put it. it it's even worse. The shells are often forgotten, aren't they, Gary? They, they are. They are. And he's going to put that right, isn't he? He says, I reckoned without the Hun artillery. As our infantry advanced, down came a perfect wall of explosive along the front trenches of my brigade and the 93rd. It was the most frightful artillery display that I had seen up to that time. And in some ways, I think it was the heaviest barrage I have seen put down by the defence on any occasion. And this, the, the, the 5.9 batteries open up on no man's land, often forgotten, but it's crucial. And it... In, in a lot of accounts, you can find it. And now, who am I going to be next? Well, time? a lot of the men are forced back by the fire. And, and frankly, you can blame them. You're going to be Private Frank Rain of 18th Durham Light Infantry. And I, I interviewed him in a village called Hart, which is, you can see Hart, uh, you see across to, is it Hart? No, Hartley Pool or whatever. Anyway, I could see, oh, where's Billings? Where the, I think, I remember his horrible place. And, uh, but he was such a character and I can't really do his accent and I'm not going to try because it's not funny. But, uh, he says this, uh, oh my God, the ground in front, it was just like heavy rain. That was a machine gun bullet. Up above there were these great big 5.9 inch shrapnel shells going off. Broomhead and I went over the top together. We walked along a bit. A terrific bang and a great black cloud of smoke above us. I felt a knock on my hip, which I didn't take much notice of. I turned round and Broomhead had gone. I walked on. I couldn't see a soul of any description, either in front of me or behind me. I presume they got themselves tucked into shell holes. I thought, well, I'm not going on there by myself. <laughs> I turned round and came back. Wow. The, the true voice of the British soldier. And, and I, I don't mean cowardly. I no, mean, no, no, absolutely. What else would you do? But some some just keep going, um, even though they know it's almost hopeless. And you're going to be Private Henry Russell, back to 1st, 5th. Uh, so he'll be over in Gomacore area, wouldn't he? 1st, 5th London Rifle Brigade. What, what does he say? When we advanced beyond the smoke screens, we became an easy target for the German machine guns. I saw many of my colleagues drop down. But this somehow or other did not seem to worry me, and I continued to go forward until I suddenly became aware that there were very few of us in this first line of attack capable of going on. I found myself in the company of Lieutenant Wallace. We dived into a flat, shallow hole made by our guns. Wallace asked me whether I thought we should attempt to go on or remain there for the time being. I told him that going on would be suicidal and that the best thing we could do would be to stay there and attempt to pick off any Germans who might expose themselves. Wallace said, however, that we had been ordered to go on at all costs and that we must comply with this order. At this, he stood up and within seconds dropped down riddled with bullets. Having observed his action, I felt I must do the same. I thought that a man who could stand up and knowingly face practically certain death must be very brave. I found out that bravery hardly came into it. Once the decision was made to stand up, 
I had no further fear. I was not bothered at all, even though I believed that I would be dead within seconds and would be rotting on the ground, food for the rats the next day. I'm now convinced that when it comes to the last crunch, nobody has any fear at all. It's not a question of bravery. In some extraordinary manner, the chemistry of the body anaesthetizes it. I stood up and was immediately hit by two bullets and dropped down. I did not even feel appreciably the bullets going through. I think that's an amazing quote. I really do. And uh, I, I just don't know what to say, really. Now, the Germans, they fight hard. They're massively outnumbered and they'd been under artillery bombardment for days on end. But they fought back. And you're going to be Lieutenant Cassell of the 99th Infantry Reserve Regiment. The shout of our sentry. They are coming! Tore me out of the apathy. Helmet, belt, rifle, and up the steps. On one of the steps, something white and bloody. In the trench, a headless body. The sentry had lost his life from a last shell before the fire was directed to the rear. He had paid for his vigilance with his life. It had torn open his head and his brain was lying on the steps. We rushed to the ramparts. There they come, the khaki yellows. They are not more than 20 metres in front of our trench. They slowly advance, fully equipped, full equipped to march across our bodies into the open country. But no, boys, we are alive. The moles come out of their holes. Machine gun fire tears holes in their rows. They discover our presence, throw themselves to the ground in front of our trenches. Once these were the trenches, now a mass of craters. They're welcomed by hand grenades and gunfire. And now they have to sell their lives themselves. With my rifle firing, uh, I felt my right hand hit by a heavy stroke, a bullet from a distance of 20 metres. The gun fell out of my hand. The blood is running down. Uh, uh, again, it's, uh, incredible accounts. Uh, both sides, heroes all, all <laughs> as uh, I hate people saying, but they've got to admire their guts, some of these people. Uh, now, some of the British reach actually get into the German front lines. It depends where you are as to where this happens. And you're going to be Rifleman Frank Jacobs of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade. You couldn't possibly imagine what it was like, but I will do my best to describe it. The place was nothing but a massive shell hole, some small, some huge. Huge 9.2-inch shells lay there unexploded, and the whole place had been smashed to atoms. The Germans' first line was but a ditch, and as we had expected, there were very few Germans there. These held up their hands, crying, Kamerad! Kamerad! And some were taken prisoner, and some were shot. We went on over the second line, and on until we came to the third. This was our objective. Immediately we got there, we started consolidating the trench. An awful job, for it was smashed out of all recognition. And then you've got the... Well, if you get into the enemy's trench, the German's trench, your enemy, if you see what I mean, uh, then the fighting is awful. And this is uh, Private Arthur Burke of the 20th Manchester Regiment. Then the hand-to-hand fighting started. It was hell. Bombing was the star turn. Many of the devils were taken unawares and were asleep in their dugouts. We threw bombs of every description down, smoke bombs especially. And as the hounds came up, crawling out half dead, we stuck the blighters and put them out of time. In one dugout, there were 25 in there and we set the place on fire and we spared them no mercy. They don't deserve it. They, car- they continued sniping as we were advancing until we re- 
reach them and then they throw up their hands. Mercy, camarade. We gave them mercy, I don't think. We took far too many prisoners. They numbered about a thousand and they didn't deserve being spared. What tales they told us and they would give us anything for souvenirs to spare their lives. Now, this is this this is a, a nasty part of the tale. People are upset, their comrades have been killed, they've suffered, they've been terrified. And we all know that when people are terrified, they can react in the most incredibly violent and terrible, murderous manner. And I'm afraid this is going on all over the place. There's also confusions. What sort of confusion are they? You know, what can well, there be? Who's a prisoner? Who's not a prisoner? Uh, it, it's it's just it's just a melee of, of fear and anger, and and you wouldn't know. Hysteria. You've got people in front of you and people behind you. You just wouldn't know. Now, you're going to be Captain Rex G of the 15th uh, Durham Light Infantry. Hun Trench is simply myriads of shell holes, not so many casualties as expected, as they crowded into deep dugouts and surrendered to attackers. Stopped a bullet on my head about 8am, dazed for about an hour or so. My steel helmet saved my life without a doubt. It cannot stop a direct bullet hit, but this one was glancing, a huge dent. Can remember shooting Hun officer who was shooting into backs of our men in front. Had dozens of close shaves and admit to being in frightened stew throughout the whole advance. One Hun machine gunner held up his hands, but this line could not stop to secure him prisoner, leaving this for the second line. As soon as the first line passed over, he turned his gun and mowed them down from behind. Can vouch for this. Such cases make you want to skin every Hun you see alive. Never stop to explore Hun dugouts or prisoners. Interesting. You see, this is the thing. Perhaps the, this wasn't the one who surrendered. Often, I think, what it is, they've not cleared the dugout. They, they didn't mop up properly on the first day in the Somme. They hadn't learned that you have to clear the dugouts or people will re-emerge. You've got to make sure nobody's lurking there. Whether or not that person's uh, uh, surrendered, if there are people in that dugout, you've got to clear it out. And, they, they, and the way of... I mean, later on, it's just a throw bombs down. All told, it is an absolutely murderous business. Um, and this next quote is horrendous in places. And I'm going to be Private Albert Andrews, 19th Manchester Regiment. He was trembling. He, he comes across a, a German... Uh, and he says this. He was trembling and looked half mad with his hands above his head, saying something to me which I did not understand. All I could make out was that he did not want me to kill him. I pointed to his belt and bayonet. He took those off and his hat and water bottle as well, emptied his pockets and offered the lot to me. Just then, one of my mates was coming up the trench. Get out of the way, Andy. Leave him to me. I'll give him one to himself. He meant he would throw a bomb at him, which would have blown him to pieces. The German was on his knees now in front of me, uh, fairly pleading. I said, he's an old man. He looked 60. Well, that's pretty old, isn't it, Gary? At uh, the finish, I pointed my thumb towards our lines, never taking my banner off his chest. He jumped up and then, with his hands above his head, ran out of the trench towards our lines, calling out all the time. He was trembling from head to foot and frightened to death. This was the only German I ever let off, and I never regretted it. Now, so he seems a nice bloke at the time, doesn't he, Albert? And, uh, you know, well, listen to this. Well, with him away, we both bombed the dugout and turned round to go along the trench when three fine Germans came running towards us with their hands up. They would be about 20 yards away. We both fired and two fell. My mate saying as, he, as we let go, that's for my brother in the Dardanelles. And as he fired again and the third German fell, and that's for my winter in the trenches. 
We walked up to them and one moved. My mate kicked him and pushed his bayonet into him. That finished him. This kind of thing was going on all along the line. No Germans were being spared. Wounded were being killed by us all. This is bad. This is, this is terrible. But we tried to explain to you what state of mind these men are in. They're not in a rational state of mind, are they? No. No, absolutely not. Now, they move on to the next German lines, and I'm going to read a quote from Private James Jack of the 17th Highland Light Infantry. And he says, Advancing towards the Hun's second trench, I felt as if a mule had kicked me above the right eye. Lying prone, I endeavoured to think what had happened. It turned out that I'd been sniped, the bullet piercing the steel helmet in the front and circling inside three times had cut a furrow above my right eye. The other eye had swollen up, and having crawled into the trench, almost blinded, I was ordered by Captain Laird, my platoon commander, to proceed to the rear. Looking back, I saw him hit by a shell, adding another officer casualty to the growing number. Proceeding round a traverse to the Hun communication trench, I spied a large Hun officer at the top of a dugout. I immediately gave him three of the best as I peered at him. He did not move, and getting closer I found that he had been the victim of one of his own shells, part of the casing having fixed his head to the entrance of the dugout. Now, what, what, Gary, what happens with it? You've captured a German trench. We're not talking about specific places, but what happens uh, with the Germans? What do they do? Well, inevitably, uh, there's going to be a counterattack. Now, one of the best examples of this is what the Germans call the Schuerpunkt, isn't it? Now, you, you, you've you always like, we've got this off uh, Jack, Jack Sheldon, um, who's the brilliant historian of German uh, German units. And uh, um, the 36th Division had done well. Now, this is that we're, we're, we're not we're not going to go into it particularly, but this is uh, an example of a German counterattack. The, uh, the Irish have taken... An important point, the Schuerpunkt. What do the Germans do? And and who am I going to be? You're going to be Major General Franz von Sodden of the Headquarters 26th Reserve Division. The Englishman still sits in Schwaben Redoubt. He must be driven out of it, out of our position. The attack is to be pushed with all energy. It is a point of honour for the division to recapture this important point today. The artillery is to cooperate with all possible strength. Now, this is, uh, they're determined, aren't they? And they do recapture it. We're not going into any more detail, but this, what you think. Now, let's go back to every man. So, what's it like? What's it like, Gary, to be under a German counterattack? Well, this is Private Pat Kennedy of the 18th Manchester Regiment. And he says, When you saw the Germans coming to you with fixed bayonets, the old sergeant who'd been out since Mons, he says, By God, Pat, if they get any nearer, we'll have to go and meet them with a bayonet. I thought, Right. I've got a round in my breech in case I'm missing with a bayonet. I can shoot him. Just pull the trigger. Catch him that way. But they got very near on top of us, a few feet away from us, and they were coming full pelt, yelling at the top of their voices. It's a nasty feeling to think of these big Germans, all picked men. They were regular troops, done years and years conscript service. But really, they were on a level with us because I think it was their first field action. Now it's um, so it's ter- it must be terrifying. I mean, I can't imagine it, but it, it it's often the old veterans uh, in the accounts, especially the oral history. You get people referencing these veterans. You you're now going to be uh, Private Pat Kennedy again, aren't you? During one counterattack, I couldn't get my ammunition clips out of my pouches quick enough. So this old soldier with a South African war ribbon said to me, "Hey lad, get your clips on the top of the parapet. It's more easy for you to do it." 
It was a good tip because I could load very, very quick and fire. The counter-attack was beaten off. That always makes me remember, I don't know whether you saw that clip of ammunition we found up at... Uh, uh, up on the Kirich Tepe Ridge, where there'd been a desperate defence by the Irish, and clearly some soldier been put his uh, just that. It's an, it's a, you get you you get ready, don't you? Um, they could could they they couldn't hold on everywhere, could they? No, some of them are, are cut off by the German barrages. Now explain to me, well, what that's the German standing barrages, and what does that mean if there's a barrage in no man's land, all across no man's land? Well, you're you're cut off between your your position and and your own front line. So it's, no reserves are coming. Nothing from. can come up, uh, and uh, you're going to be captain. Sparks of the first fourteenth London Scottish. I am faced with this position. I have collected all bombs and small arms ammunition from casualties. Every one has been used. I am faced with three alternatives: a to stay here with such a men of my men as alive and be killed; b to surrender to the enemy; c to withdraw such of my men as I can. Either of these first two alter alternatives is distasteful for, to me. I propose to adopt the latter. So he doesn't want to be killed. He doesn't want to surrender. So they're going to make a desperate dash across no man's land. Yeah, and sometimes they just have to make a run for it. And uh, Private Arthur Schumann of the 1st 5th London Rifle Brigade says, By now I was just petrified. I knew that if I stayed in the trench, I would have most certainly been killed. Everyone for himself! I did not wait to argue. Over the top I went like greased lightning, surviving a hail of bullets. I immediately fell flat. Then, trying to imagine I was part of the earth, I wriggled along on my belly. Dead, dying and wounded, feigning death, who knows? The ground was covered with them. I sped from shell hole to shell hole. Never had I run faster. It was snipers, machine guns and shrapnel all the way. About halfway across, I rolled into a shell hole and fell on top of a badly wounded German in a pitiable state, probably an abandoned prisoner. All he said was, schlecht, schlecht, which means bad. I don't know what made me do it, but I gripped his hand and then sped on. When I finally scrambled into our front line trench, I was greeted by our adjutant, Captain Wallace, and Regimental Sergeant Major McVeigh, who both solemnly shook my hand. I was told that only 20 had returned so far. Now, always difficult with casualties. I think that's the most amazing human thing. W without thinking, the human thing, there's this poor, badly wounded German, and just that little point of human contact to grab hold of his hand. I actually think that's quite uh, quite touching. Uh, it's very moving. It is. It's, uh, it's something special, that. Uh, now, the wounded, they're pouring back as uh, best they can. And, and, and this is a story I'm going to tell from Private William Smith. He's a Royal Engineer, a Royal Eng uh, Signaller. Uh, he's in the Signals Department. And I, d I think this just sort of sums it up. Uh, I met a, a very young private of the 12th Londons. One of his arms was hanging limp and was, I should think, broken in two or three places. He was cut and bleeding about the face and was altogether in a sorry plight. He stopped me and, and asked me, is there a dressing station down there, mate? Uh, pointing al uh, along the way I had come. I replied, yes, keep straight on down the trench. It's a good way down, but there's a stretcher bearer only just gone along. Shall I see if I can get him for you? His reply, I shall never forget. Ah, I don't want him for me. <laughs> I want someone to come back with me and get my mate. He's hurt. <laughs> Again, I find these quite touching at times. Uh, they're not quite as funny as our normal stuff, are they? Now, to the south... I mean, that's, a lot of those quotes uh, are from Gomacor, uh, which was a diversion in which they lost the ground they held. To the south, 
they they did hold their ground, and that you're going to be Private Albert Con, Con by name, Con by nature, and uh, of the Eighth Devonshire's uh, Regiment. Uh, and what what does he say? I lost no time in getting myself dug in. The dead had fallen in many strange, grotesque postures, some on their hands and knees as if they were praying. I did have a bit of a scrounge round, though. I thought I might get one of those belts with got mittons on it, or perhaps one of those Prussian helmets. I did come across one bloke, but when I lifted his helmet, half the top of his nut was in it. It was full of brains like mincemeat. I'm not very squeamish, but I didn't fancy scraping that out. Got mittens, eh? It's... That's, uh... We've got mittens too. <laughs> yes, that's a different different element. Uh, I, I, I think that's, uh, again, it's a powerful quote. Now, uh, are souvenirs something that the average British soldier, as, as they calm They're down? They're constantly on the lookout for them, aren't they? And uh, uh, you're going to be Private Albert Andrews again of the 19th Manchester Regiment. What does Albert say about well, it? Well, this is a nicer quote than some of the other ones that Albert said. Uh, Two or three of us went down into a fine d- German dugout. There were cigars, tin food and German helmets. We all took a helmet. Uh, cigars and tobacco coming out with these German helmets on we ran straight into our captain yes he said you all look very nice but get some fucking digging done what does he mean he means that when you take a trench you have to turn it round you have to dig a fire step in the back of the trench so it's yeah, a life because it's facing the wrong way in effect it's a life or death thing isn't it and what were they doing <laughs> they were trying on helmets and uh, smoking. And they'll, they'll be the pickle hubs, won't they? Yeah. Now, the German prisoners are being gathered up and they're being marched back. And uh, now, rather fittingly, I'm going to be Chaplain Leonard Jeeves of 55th Brigade, 18th Division. Now, you wanted to be uh, a chaplain, didn't you? I did, you? yeah. Well, wanted, wanted probably officer, a bit strong. And the officer said something very similar to what the last yeah, officer... it was the platoon sergeant. <laughs> he just told me to fuck off back to bed. It was one evening. Um... Chaplain Leonard Jeeves. All eyes were turned to the bend in the road around which came the first batch of prisoners. A more pitiable spectacle of human misery I have seldom seen outside of a madhouse. Worn white and thin with the appalling bombardment and with hands uplifted, they glanced like hunted animals from side to side as they crept through the lines of wounded men and went back to the place provided for them. And again, and yet again, they came along many of them never meant for a soldier's life, but driven to it by a state in which a few ambitious leaders made the whole land rise and use all the means that science could teach them in warfare. Wow. That's, uh, they're, 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 some of the uh, clergy were almost more vehement and uh, more murderous <laughs> than uh, thing. Uh, now, the survivors, they're, they're, they're left to think it all over, aren't they? And Captain Rex G was... He was in a terrible state at the end of it. You can tell it by this quote you're going to read. I'm only officer left in the company. Cannot understand how anyone escaped alive, never mind capture and hold hun trenches. Haven't got much left in the way of nerves. Had no sleep for 50 hours and no proper meals or rest. And dog tired and not worth much. Everything was horrible, ghastly and awful. May I never experience the same again. Saw scores of horribly wounded, horribly killed and being converted to conscientious objector. Words cannot express the horrors of it all. And I think, you know, many, they're just scarred for life, aren't they? Um, PTSD doesn't, cover it almost they're just 
you can imagine them not recovering. Some do, some don't. And I'm going to be Lieutenant William Collier again. Now, you remember how before he was all confident? Well, this is him afterwards. I'm lying in the corner of a darkened dugout. The night is already far advanced, but I cannot sleep. The sound of heavy breathing within the dugout mingles strangely with the occasional whine of a shell without. Every now and again, the doorway is filled with an eerie, shivering light caused by a flare set off from the front line a few hundred yards away. The odour of, of spent explosive still hangs heavy in the air. What a disastrous day it's been. What a wanton shedding of human blood. And yet, I suppose, only to be expected in war, and all in the day's work of a soldier. I'm no soldier. That's the truth of it. I cannot sleep for my, for my thinking of my fellow officers. I cannot grasp the fact that I shall never see some of them again. It's such a short while ago that I, I left them in the height of good spirits, and now in the freshness of youth, <laughs> they've suddenly gone off to another world. It's uncanny to think of it. More than that, it's sickening, wicked, cruel, impossible. It's only now that I realise how much their friendship meant to me. I don't think he's taking it well, and I, 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 I can't blame him. Imagine a load of your best friends in the world, and you would, you would tell me, I've never experienced, but the comradeship of the army, even in peacetime, is, is special, isn't it? It is, and, uh, and what's happened makes some others just more determined to fight on. They're, they're actually seeking revenge because so of what's happened. It's important that, so this isn't one size fits all, is it? This is different people are going to react in different ways, and this is important to grasp. It is. Uh, some people got angry. You know, and, and you're going to be Second Lieutenant Alan Jacobs of the 8th East Surrey Regiment. All our best men and NCOs are gone. And when one sees the remains of a fine battalion, one realises the disgusting sordidness of modern war. When any yokel can fire a gun that may or may not, chance entirely, kill a man worth 50 of the firer. But we must bear these losses silently, for it is the way that lies before us and the only way to victory. Yeah. Cost? Well, it's well, horrendous, isn't it? And, uh, this is the old cliched bit, uh, in a sense, uh, the usual statistics, isn't it? But And statistics, for me, don't conjure up the losses as much as those accounts we've just read. What were they, though, Gary? Well, there's a massive 57,470 casualties, of which a staggering 19,249 were dead. Now, 19,249 living breathing lives snuffed out you know wives mothers children never to see them again it's the worst disaster to ever have befallen the british army in its entire history uh just for balance point out that the french had twenty-seven thousand killed in a single day on the 22nd of august 1914 but this is a british tragedy it's an utter complete tragedy what do you think makes it so much worse well, the county regimental system it, it exaggerates the impact of the casualties and battalions being drawn from a single the Pals city. Battalions. The Pals battalions. You've got the Sheffield Pals, the Hull Pals, um, or even in a provincial town. They're slaughtered and whole communities are thrown into, into mourning. Now, you're going to be Miss Llewellyn. I, I don't know any more details. Uh, she's a, a Sheffield... She's a, a school child in Sheffield, isn't she? She says... There were sheets and sheets in the paper of dead and wounded with photographs where they could get them of the men. 
Of course, everybody rushed to the paper every day to see if there was anyone they knew. When we got to know of anybody at the school, the headmaster announced them if they had been old boys. I was brought out of class to be told that my cousin had been killed. There were numerous services in churches. It was very, very sad time. Practically everybody was in mourning. People were in deep black. The men, if they couldn't wear black, wore black armbands as a mark of respect. The city was really shrouded in gloom. They were very, very sad and nothing seemed to matter anymore. That's uh, terrible. And this is the whole idea. So these, I mean, the British Army don't do this anymore. Uh, but they're, they're, they're friends, they work together, they, they join up together, they train together. And that you do know, and you've talked very well about the training and how it binds people together, the whole training process. Binds- but as a result, on far too many occasions, they died together. And uh, uh, it, it was learnt uh, fairly quickly that, that it was going to be a painful experience because of how these people had been recruited and kept together. So uh, no, no comfort to the families in this. No, you know, their children out their fathers. Uh, you know, yeah. Oh God! But it's not only the dead. There, there are scores of, of of wounded men coming back. Uh, some of them would be restored to full health, wonderfully, and leave full lives. But many more had faced the consequences of their injuries, and they carried their scars, often gross disfigurements, for the rest of their days. Oh, I don't know, and uh, of course. Uh, what lies in front of those that have survived unscathed? So you've got through, you have survived the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the, the, the day of legend now. But uh, what lies in front of you, do you think? Well, you're still serving at, in, at the front and uh, you're in a war that could wreak havoc like, uh, like the Battle of the Somme. It's not going to end any time soon. It wasn't the Great War of 1914-1916, was it? No, it wasn't. And uh, I don't think we've got anything else to say. There's no jokes about right. this. Um, uh, it was very moving. I thought uh, some of those quotes were, rightly, I think, gave uh, uh, a very vivid impression of some of the horrors that they'd experienced. Thank you very much, Gary. Cheers, Pete. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts.
Sounds great, doesn't it?